what a rowdy song. Rowdy crowd out there. Yeah, I don't want to put out that fire. Amen. Anthony. So I haven't seen, have, uh, uh, has Chandler come back out yet? And Chris, also known as Larry Maples. Congratulations, goes out. So Officer Maples is a United States Marine in addition to a Murfreesboro police officer who fought at Fallujah and uh, quite the man. Anyway, just cool church. Glad you're with us. Those of you online, glad you're with us. When I was a teenager, no book had more influence over me than this book, a book called I Believe Because, which was published in 1971. It's a defense of the Christian faith, still really, really super read. You can get it as a PDF now online for free. It was written by Batsel Barrett Baxter, who is one of the most fabled ministers in the Churches of Christ. I think the first Church Christ minister ever to get a PhD in speech, which he got from USC. Baxter wrote the book, he says, in response to the loss of faith that he was noticing in some young people in 71, 1971. I didn't know it at the time, but one of those who had lost their faith was his own son, who several years before had finished a graduate program at Vanderbilt University, and over the course of that study had completely lost his faith in Jesus. Not proud of it, but was heartbroken that he couldn't any longer believe and was now an atheist. When Baxter starts his book in the foreword, he describes sitting with a young man and talking about his future. And I can't help but think that Baxter's not talking about his own son, though I don't know that. He says, as we sat there, I remembered this young man through the years, his unusual talent, his keenness of mind, his impressive personality, and his ability to communicate and to lead others. He said, I asked him, you know, what, what will you do now that you've lost your faith, that the Bible's not anything uh, extraordinary to you, Jesus is nobody for you, what will you do? And the young man expressed his despair that he didn't, he didn't know what he would do. And right at the end of that, uh, that section in his foreword, Baxter says, there was a long pause before I asked this question. What do you see for the future? And a longer pause followed, and then the reply, nothing. Batsel Barrett Baxter, who was the chair of the Bible department at Lipscomb for a number of years, Lipscomb University, had joined a, a club that many of us have also joined, and that is the club of having children who lost their faith. There's actually a lot of us in that. And I have his permission to share it with you, so I have done that in the past, but Somewhere when Jonathan was probably around 14 years old, he sat down with me and explained to me that he didn't believe in God anymore. I've told you about this, so I'm not going to go into great detail. But I can tell you that those of us who have heard those words or seen them demonstrated in the lives of our children share a particular sadness that is probably difficult for others to understand. And many of us have been there, many of us in this room, where we feel like failures, we feel a sense of shame, a profound sense of sadness that at the resurrection I won't be there with the boy who's actually named after me. And for those of us who've been through that, like our one and only prayer is, Lord, bring him back. So 27 years after Batsel Baxter published his book, at the Woodmont Hills Church in Nashville, Tennessee in 1998, a 50-year-old man came down at the end 
of the service and said, my name is Scott Baxter, and I've come back to Jesus. They baptized him. Matter of fact, uh, after I told the story at first service, someone came up and said, I was in the service. They not only baptized him, they held the Lord's Supper so, until after the baptism so he could preside over the table. And from that point forward, he said, I'm back. Now, March the 30th of 2003, when I was preaching in Overland Park, Kansas, he visited our congregation. I'd not met him before. When I found out who it was, I said, tell me, is this story about you that I've heard true? And he said, yes, it's true. And I said, what happened to you? And here's his words. He said, I guess God wasn't done with me. Oh, my goodness, I can't stand getting choked up. He wanted me to have a do-over. That's our text. God gives us a do-over. God apparently never gets tired of giving us a do-over. He apparently never gets tired of it because he not only offers do-overs, but even before we sin, he's already paved the road for us to come back. It's as though God not only knows that we're going to sin, it's that he loves us so much that he's not going to stop pursuing us, that he's coming after us. He's coming after your kids too, God is. That's what Deuteronomy 30 is about. This book, which is a covenant restatement between God and the people of Israel, designed to remind them when they get to the land of promise to be faithful to God, not only is filled with the curses that we had to wade through the last couple of weeks, those difficult texts, but God, when announcing the curses in the very same book where he announces the curses of disobedience, says, and when you come back, this is what I'm going to do for you. It's as extraordinary as if I were to say to my son, which I didn't have to, but if I had said to my son, John, I know you're going to use illegal drugs. I know you're going to end up in jail. When you get out of jail, I'm going to be there and I'm going to bring you home. Who talks like that? Who not only predicts the loss of their children, but then actually says, but I'm going to come get you after you're lost. And the answer is God does that because he never tires of a, a do-over. God doesn't get tired of, of, of offering us, a, for those of you who are younger, a respawning where you can actually come back as a new person, where you can actually rediscover and play the game again. That's what Deuteronomy 30 is about because God has just now finished several chapters in which he has said in the book of Deuteronomy, when you're disobedient, terrible things are going to happen. I want to make sure you understand it. It's not simply that God punishes disobedience. It is that disobedience is bad for you. It's bad for your health. When you're disobedient to God, you bring all sorts of dysfunctions into your life. And God says, okay, that's going to happen. And then in chapter 30, he says, and when it does, I'll take you back. Here it is. Lamentations 3, the principle. So Jeremiah writes this, by the way, as he's looking at the ruins of Jerusalem. It must have taken quite an extraordinary imagination to be able to say this when you're looking at the ruins of the city that God said would be punished for its disobedience. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God welcomes do-overs. Let's start at verse 1. We're going to move quickly through the text. I'm going to give you a way back. A way back from wherever you are. Because God says it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me how far you've been scattered. I'm going to come after you. 
when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. So regardless of how many times we fail, God says, I'm offering you a do-over. He's, when my son said what he said to me, how many times do you think I would have taken him back? And the answer is, there's no number. Endlessly. By the way, I get to see my son this week. We're going to visit with Jonathan and Eugene. John's doing great. He not only came back, as I've told y'all, but he's planting a church. And more serious about Jesus, I think, than not only I was at his age, but I've ever been. But I would have taken him back as many times as he would have come back. And that's what God is saying. When all these bad things happen because of what you chose to do, don't give up. I'll take you back. His mercies never come to an end. I want to keep reading. We're going to get through the text rather quickly here. Verse 4. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. I can think of Jeremiah 31 where the Lord says in Jeremiah, which comes years after this book, the Lord says, I'm going to gather you in. They're going to be the lame hobbling in, the blind coming in, the old men coming in. They're going to be women coming back with tambourines dancing. They're going to be babies. He describes it as a great ingathering at the end of time when God says, I'm coming after you because I'm not going to let you go. Verse 5, he'll bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors and you'll take possession of it. He'll make you more prosperous and more numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. All that means is God's going to make it so that we don't want to leave him anymore. That we have tender hearts that love him. Circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all the curses on your enemies who hate you and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands I'm giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, the crops of your land. The Lord will delight in you. I just pause to say, notice that it's not just God saying, I'm going to restore all your fortunes. But listen to this. God says, I'm going to find my joy in you again. So you, you, those of you who are parents, not all of you, but those of you who are parents, you get this. It is today, Rachel Harrison Young's birthday, by the way. She was born at 10.04 p.m. on July the 11th, 1994. Rachel Bazil, yeah, she got married um, to Dalton. Happy birthday, Rachel. And I get it. My Rachel and my, my Jonathan are my delight. Like if everything, if I fell at everything else, I, I won because I have them. And the Lord is saying that to us. I'm going to get you back after you stumble, after you sin, after you go through all the pain, after everything that happens to you happens to you, I'm going to get you back. And you're going to be my delight, my child. 
the Lord will again delight in you. He'll make you prosperous just as he delighted in your ancestors. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands, his decrees that are written in this book of the law, and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then we start to wrap up. And by the way, this text is the thesis text for this sermon series I've been preaching, beginning at verse 11. Gorgeous words. A poet couldn't have done this. Listen to what he says. Remember, they're, they're striking a covenant. and God, They're just about to cross over. They're just about to take the land God had promised 400 years before to Abraham. They're just about, they can see the land. It's just over the river. And the Jordan River is a little river. It's the, it's the size of the Stones River. They're just on the other side. They're, you know, they're 20 yards away from it. And he's striking a deal with them. He's saying, now look, when you get there, please keep me at the center and it'll go great with you. And here's how he puts it. What I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you would have to say, who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity or death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase. The Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, if you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship, then I declare to you this day, you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. And then what does God do? You know, every covenant requires a witness. Who's God going to call for a witness? Well, the only appropriate witnesses are heaven and earth. I call heaven and earth, he says, as my witnesses. This day, I call heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now, Choose life so that you and your children may live, that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, the deal is, it's really never too late to choose life because God is a God of do-overs. God is the kind of God who says, I can find you. Wherever you are, I can find you. If you will just come back, I'll find you. I'll take you. I'll make you a road. You don't get too far from God. You don't get too old for God. You don't get too set in your ways. You're not too heavily evolved in your addictions that God can't get you out. Man, I've learned this lesson so many times in my own life, but also in ministry. The first full-time work that Julie and I had was in Portageville, Missouri, in southeast Missouri. We went there in 1983. Melvina Clay was a member of our congregation. Her husband, Albert Clay, was not. He was not a Christian. Albert was 84 years old, which means he was born in the year 1900. Melvina, by the way, was a, a precious soul who passed away about 20 years ago. Melvina came to me one day and she said, would you go talk to my husband, Albert? about becoming a Christian. I said, yep, absolutely I will. 
and uh, I was a little intimidated. Albert, as I said, 84, I was 23. Listen to this, so Albert not only grew up in the Jim Crow South, he had lived through the Spanish flu pandemic, which killed 50 million people. He had lived through World War I, he'd lived through the Great Depression, he'd lived through World War II, he'd grown up in the turbulent 50s and 60s. This was a man who had more experience and more wisdom and maybe a bigger view of the world than, than I could ever possibly have. And when I sat down opposite, it dawned on me that I was a, just a boy trying to talk this man into following Jesus. And I don't know if you can see it on his face. This is the perfect Albert Clay face. By the way, it's also the perfect shirt. I love his shirt. But, but it's the perfect face. This is the face of a man who was optimistic, strong, exceptionally strong, and deeply wise. And I talked to him about following Jesus. He listened. After about an hour, he says to me, it's about time I do this. And I thought to myself, well, dadgummit, I should have come a year ago. I didn't know it was going to be this easy. I took him down. I baptized him at age 84. I baptized Albert Clay. By the way, if you go to Portersville, Missouri today, as soon as you get off I-55 and go into the city, you'll see Albert Clay Drive. They named the road after him. Julie, you remember where he lived. They named the road after Albert Clay. And I've just thought to myself so many times since then, you're never too old. You can't get too far away from God. Y'all know I did a wedding service at North Boulevard 20 years ago for a man who was 93 years old. You never get too old. You just don't. I'm just be, I'm being straight up with you here. You can't get too far away from God. Think about some of the people we've had speak at North Boulevard. So uh, Dr. Ming Wang grew up in, during the Cultural Revolution in China when the government was so hostile towards its people, as many as 50 million people were murdered under the communist regime there in uh, China. During the Cultural Revolution, he, he was persecuted, his family was persecuted. The man learned to play the Urhu and he learned how to uh, translate into English so he could get, escape. He comes to the U.S., he ends up with a medical degree as well as a Ph.D. in laser physics. Now an ophthalmologist, he came to Jesus. And here's what he would say, from where he started as a poor dirt farmer in China to having one of the most successful and celebrated ophthalmology practices in, in the world, really, but in the U.S., certainly. You never get too far away from Jesus. He's a faithful Christian now, and that actually helps to explain why other Christians have come to Jesus, not just in China, but even here, Randall Matlock baptizing a Chinese woman. And just think about this for a moment. The communist government in China, for all the things that China has done well, and we, we are for the Chinese people. I don't like how the Chinese government is persecuting its people, but we're for the Chinese people. When you, as a Chinese person, make a decision to become a follower of Jesus, it's a serious decision. That's why it takes a year to persuade a Chinese person to get baptized, because they understand they're going to lose their career, they may lose their family, they may lose all future opportunities, but when they make a decision, they're all in. You can't get too far from the love of God. You remember Miriam and Marzea? These two women spent more than a year in the most notorious prison in Tehran, Iran, in the Persian prison for their faith. Were they too far from Jesus? No, while they were in prison, they were evangelizing people. And you may not realize this, but the evidence suggests that the fastest growing church movement on planet Earth today is happening, guess where? In the country of Iran. And it is largely led by women 
who are just discipling one another in insanely multiplying ways. And when the pandemic's over, we look forward to having these young men back from the Rutherford County Work Center as they visit us once every six months or once every 12 months. And when they come in, it's so delightful to say it doesn't matter where you are in prison. You're never so far that God cannot reach you. No matter what your sins are, your failures are, no matter what crimes you've committed, no matter what things you're ashamed of, no matter how many times you have stumbled, you're not so far that he won't offer you a do-over. He offers you a do-over right up to the resurrection. Annie Lobert came and spoke. She was a prostitute in Las Vegas, a drug addict, everything you can think of until the day that she accepted the do-over. And God took her back, and now she evangelizes prostitutes with her ministry, Hookers for Jesus. Yes, you heard that right. <laughs> Sam Albury wrestled with same-sex attraction his whole life and has decided, you know, I'm going to live a celibate life, but I'm going to live life for Jesus. I'm just saying, you never get so far that he can't find you. And if you're thinking to yourself, these are extraordinary stories because they are, but maybe my struggles haven't been that severe. Good, good. But I will remind you of this. None of us is immune from failure, discouragement, frustration, and sin in our journey from our baptism to our resurrection. And there are times that we must wonder to ourselves, can I ever get out of this? And the answer is yes. God delights in offering do-overs. You get a mulligan on this. You can start over. You can start over today. You can leave the addiction behind, the secret hidden sins. You can leave it behind. You can leave the failures behind. Today could be a new chapter. That's what Deuteronomy says. After you've experienced the curses, when you come back, he says, it won't matter to me how far you are. I'll find you, and I'll get you back. Hey, if that's not good news to you, it's because I'm a lousy preacher, because that's really good news. And if I were you, I'd say amen. I just would. When, at the beginning of the year, when we were talking, when we started uh, working through Deuteronomy, I suggested that everybody write down two or three areas in life where you would like to grow in obedience in the year 2021. If you don't remember that, don't worry. I, like, I didn't remember it either, but I do now because I'm preaching it. You remember doing that? We wrote down like areas that we really would like to uh, um, grow in our obedience because we're doing Deuteronomy, which is a book about obedience. Matter of fact, I just want to pause and say, we're just about to finish Deuteronomy. And I know it's uh, bittersweet because for some of you, it's like it's gone really too long. And for others of you, it's like really been a really awesome thing. We, I picked Deuteronomy. I was working with a team of uh, worship leaders and all we were talking about what to do back in the fall because we said, let's pick the hardest book we can think of just to see will people stick with the verse-by-verse study. And you did. By the way, it was Corey Trimble that sort of motivated me to do this over the Experience Church because I, everybody kept telling me, you know, Corey has never done anything but preach verse-by-verse. And I kept saying, I said several times, I don't believe that. Because people, they, they just can't hang in to verse-by-verse preaching. Nobody can do that anymore. And I went over there one, probably this seven or eight years ago, and he was preaching verse-by-verse. And I just thought, well, man, he's gone from zero to 5,000 people going verse-by-verse. I think I probably ought to start doing that. So if you don't like it, send Corey a nasty email or text message. 
It's his fault. But as we wrap up the book of Deuteronomy, we're talking about obedience. And I challenged you, name some areas you'd like to grow. Here were your top answers. The top answer was we would like to have a daily quiet time or prayer time or Bible study. I've conflated several answers. So here's my question. How's it gone for you? How's it gone for you? You made this decision in early January. How's it gone for you? We'll come back to it in a second. The second most prominent answer was I want to become more, I want to be more like Jesus as a husband or a wife. And again, I'm kind of conflating different ways of wording this, but these were I want to be a better husband, better wife, better parent. And a few of you said a better child. The number three answer, I want to lose weight, eat better, or exercise. I'm conflating this. How, how are these going for you? Like you all said, this is what I want to do. This is kind of my New Year's resolution, grow in obedience. How's it going for you? The number four answer, develop a more positive attitude. By the way, if it's not going well for you, I gotta, I, I'm going I'm to just give you like a really good word of encouragement. You know what you do? Go buy a 12, a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts, eat them all and just say, I'll never make it. Just, just fold. No, if, you, if, if it didn't work, guess what? You get a do-over. Today can be January 1st for you. God will take you back. If it hasn't happened for you, you don't have to put a bullet in your head. You don't have to jump off a cliff. You don't have to go to Krispy Kreme. Although if you're going to go, get me a few while you're there. <laughs> what I'm saying is God offers do-overs not just for prostitutes. He offers do-overs for all of us. Like it's not too late to start. It's not too late to do what God has asked us to do. He says, I don't care how far from me you're banished, I'll find you. You come back, I'll find you, and I'll get you back. Your fifth answer, deeper faith, less anxiety, and your sixth answer, I want to disciple somebody. So the bottom line, all I'm suggesting from this text is that wherever you find yourself, when it's time to start a new chapter, God says, okay, let's do it. That's the... That's, that's the true God. That God is better than all the fake gods, the fake gods of every other religion and the fake gods of paganism. That God loves you. No other God loves you. Other gods want you to be afraid of them. Other gods want you to serve them like a slave. Other gods hate you and they put you in bondage. This God loves you. And he says, wherever you are, when you're ready, come on back. I'll take you back. So how do I do it? Well, when you realize you've fallen, you need to start by being honest about it. So when Bill Wilson founded AA, the 12-step program, and I'll say, I've said this before, I don't mind saying it again. The 12-step program is simply living the Christian life, which is why every Christian needs to live the 12-step program. I mean, it really is just living the Christian life. When Bill Wilson started Alcoholics Anonymous, he said the whole AA program will be, built, will be built on one principle. And you know what it is? We'll be honest. We'll be honest. Because here's the deal. When you're stuck in a sin, stuck in a failure, when you're stuck in a secret sin or a hidden addiction, you know you lie like a dog. You lie to everybody else because you don't want them to know what you've done. You lie because you're ashamed of yourself. You lie in order to prevent people from getting hurt because you did something bad or stupid. And in the course of all that lying, you don't even see the truth anymore. You can't even see the truth. This is what Bill Wilson said, that at some point, people stuck in their sin start to believe their own lies. And we become imprisoned 
by our lies. This is what confession does. It sets us free. Confession is telling the truth about who we are and what we've done so that the healing can begin. That's why the Bible talks about confessing first to God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just and He'll forgive us our sins. And then confessing to others. If we confess to one another, we'll be prayed for and we can be healed. Now, I want to say Confession doesn't mean telling everybody everything, but here's what I would do. I would get in a small group and especially a same gender discipleship group, and I would say, guys, I got to tell you, I got to tell you the truth, and I need you to help me. Confession is where it starts. Make sure you understand, as long as you're lying to yourself, you will never recover, never, because Jesus says you will know the truth. You remember the rest of that verse? You will know the truth. Somebody help me out with that verse. You will know the truth. Yeah. And the truth will set you free. Number two, be honest about your weakness and depend on God for your strength. Before Ascension Hospital here in Middle Tennessee and now across the nation was saying this, Jesus said it, which is with God, all things are possible. So I just say this, if you're stuck in a chronic sin, a secret sin, as many of us find ourselves in, a failure, you can't get out of discouragement, you're in a relationship that's killing you, whatever it is, here's the deal. You can try harder, try harder. Or you can say to the Lord, hey, I'm done. I am powerless. You know, I've given it all this time and I can't seem to defeat it. I'm now giving it to you. It's your problem. And you can start begging God. Remember, that's what the Bible says. Knock and the door will be open to you. Seek and you will find. Ask and it will be given to you. You can start saying, Lord, I'm not stopping. I'm banging on your door. I'm going to bang on your door in the morning when you're still asleep. I'm going to bang on your door at night when you go to bed. I'm not going to stop asking until you resolve this issue. You don't think God can handle that? With God, all things are possible. With us, not so much. So once you decide I'm done with this, ask God, give me what you need me to have in order to get back to you. I would make amends, offer to make amends to those whom you've harmed. You know, Jesus says this. He's pretty clear about this. Jesus says if you're offering your gift at the altar, there's a couple of ways to think about that. We might think when you're making your donation to church. You may also think, because in the Jewish world, what would really have corresponded to this was the Lord's Supper. Be a good analogy. What he says is when you're getting ready to take the Lord's Supper, which you guys are about to do, if you remember that somebody has been hurt by you or offended by you or taken advantage of by you or mistreated by you, I wouldn't take that Lord's Supper. Instead, what I would do is I'd put it on the side. It's self-contained. It'll last 10 years. The fact of the matter is, tasting that bread is probably already 10 years old. Uh, (laughs) You set it aside. And he says, go make it right first. Go make it right. He wants us to make amends with one another. And by the way, this is super important for us that we make amends. It's not enough just to say, you know, okay, I'm coming back to God. Because usually our sins and many times our failures, they create an injustice for somebody else. Like we're all craving justice. Don't forget that some of your sins have created a very unjust circumstance for others. And so, if I go back to Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson would make the case, these are steps number eight and nine, 
where we go and offer to make amends. And by the way, he, he wisely says, unless doing so would cause more harm. There are some occasions where you're, you really shouldn't enter someone else's life whom you've deeply hurt. But in the majority of cases, making amends means, let me tell you what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean saying I'm sorry. Because if you've got addictive sins in your life, you know how many times the people that love you have heard you say you're sorry? It's meaningless to them now. It's an insult. Oftentimes saying I'm sorry is an insult. They've heard you say it so many times they don't believe it. You know what's better than I'm sorry? Here's what's better. Here I am, hat in my hands. Tell me what I can do to make it right. Now, those are powerful words. That's when you really are offering people justice. You're really saying, I'm putting my future in your hands so I can be right with God. So the path back to God from your exile, it requires that you try to restore some justice in the lives of people whom you've hurt. Surround yourself with people who will help you stand firm. Most of our, most of our problems in life are learned. They're, they're learned things. They come from our environment. And so if you're around people who are, you know, really aren't helping to build you up, this is why you want to be, that's why you, you don't just want to be like in church. You want the church to be your family. That's why I like things like small groups matter because it gives us that positive reinforcement, that positive encouragement and support that we require. And I'll say this too. Number five, turn your failure into a ministry. So many of us, we've got like really bad things in our lives that we're ashamed of and that we regret. I mean, who doesn't have regrets? I hope you don't. Most of us have some pretty deep regrets in our lives. But you don't have to let that be the definition of your future. You can actually take the regrets and the hurts and the pains in your life, and then you can turn those into an outreach for somebody else. So if you lost your children to the world, I want to say two things on this one. The first thing I want to say, if you lost your children to the world, you know, a lot of us have. You don't, you don't take on more shame than you ought to. Who's the best father who ever lived? Who is the best? Yeah, y'all can answer this one. Who's the best father who ever lived? I'll, I'll help you. God. Right? How many of God's children rebelled against him? Every single one of them, except Jesus Christ. So are we going to blame God for being a bad father? I just want to start by saying, don't carry more guilt and shame than you need to. And, and it's okay to talk about it here. Like it's okay to say, I lost my son when he was 14. It's okay to say that. If, you, if we can't share those burdens with each other, then you have to go home and live in isolation and loneliness and pain about it. Don't. This is a family of God. We share our burdens here. We share our burdens. It's okay. There are hundreds of us who've been there, hundreds of us in this room, hundreds online who have shared this same burden. But I want to say second this, while you're praying and waiting for God to bring your child home, don't waste that pain. Go out there and find some young man or some young woman that you think, I could help that person. You know, that's what happened to my son, Paul Skidmore. Jim McDermott, Ken Carlson, they, went ch they chased my son down and brought him back to Jesus. Can't we do the same? I can take my pain, I can take my loss, and I can turn it into an outreach to bring somebody else back. 
And that applies to all sorts of things. You know, the best therapists are oftentimes people who've been through it themselves. That's why in recovery houses, typically half the employees are recovering addicts. Because they understand. They know it. I'm just suggesting, don't waste the pain that you've gone through. Use it in service to your king. And then last, you can cast your cares on him because he does care for us. As he says, I'm going to delight. When I bring you back, he says, I'm going to delight in you. I'm going to delight in you. So once we've done this, once we've said, I know he'll take me back, God delights in do-overs, well, relax and enjoy the rod. Welcome back. It's not too late to come home. You know, since the pandemic, we've been uh, taking this, uh, these little communion kits. We're doing it live. Those of you uh, at home have to do it your own way. And Sean and I have been talking about, is there any way to make the kit, this little styrofoam piece of bread in there and the juice and the box that opens sometimes, a little more relational and a little more meditative. So I'm going to try something with you. I want to give you a chance for a bit more relational and a bit more meditative communion. Now, that's right. I'm about to give you an opportunity to do something. So if you, if you sense it's coming, you're right. The first thing I want to say is if you want to do the communion the way you've always done it, just, that's no problem. Just do it. No problem. But I do want to invite you to just bunch up with the people sitting around you, the persons next to you or the people in the pew right behind you. And during the communion this day, I'm not going to say prayers. We're not going to offer a public prayer. You and the group of people sitting around you, you pray over the bread and then eat the bread. You pray over the juice and then drink the juice. What, what we just did is a reminder of the extent to which God was willing to go to give you a do-over. And he was willing to take upon himself the penalty, the curse for our disobedience so that we could have access back to him. That's how much God loves you. So, as I said, as Deuteronomy says, it's never too late to choose life. It's never too late to say, Lord, I'm back. Help me come back wholeheartedly to you this day. I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Let's stand up and sing.